Hello, everyone. It's another COVID episode. Mark Thompson here on The Conversation. Such a pleasure to be with you. Always interesting people, interesting guests doing things that are important and also intriguing. And today is no disappointment. John Hoadley. And, you know, John, I'm putting my credibility glasses on so I don't blow your title. It's a state representative. It's his third time uh, and his third term as representative for the 60th House District. Now, this is in Michigan. So this includes Kalamazoo. What else is in your district? So I've got the city of Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo Township, and a little bit of the city of Portage. There's a lot in you that's uh, sort of reflective of the progressive ideals. You work hard. As I say, you right now are serving. And uh, at the same time that you're you know, serving as a, a member, uh, a state representative there, as a member of the legislature trying to shape legislation and help your constituency, you're also running for office. You're running for re-election. Both of those things seem as though they would be full-time commitments. How do you balance that? Uh, before we even get going as to some of the specifics and platform stuff, I'm just wondering about that, running for office while also serving in office. Yeah, so, you know, I'm in my third and final term as a state representative. And in that role, I'm the ranking Democrat, the minority vice chair on the state budget, the state appropriations committee. And we are in the thick of passing a budget this week. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing my day job well, right? I've got constituents I need to help get their unemployment insurance. We got to make sure we're dealing with constituent requests and writing legislation. At the same time, I'm right now the Democratic nominee for U.S. Congress in Michigan's 6th Congressional District. So I have an opportunity to flip a seat that is um, about seven times as big as my House seat in one of the states that we've got to win this fall. And the effort to flip the seat, uh, you really do have to emphasize where you are philosophically, uh, strategically, I'm talking about in terms of the, the strategy of politics, you know, should you get in, into office, where, where are you in, and how does that case present it day to day? So I'm one of the progressive members of the legislature. And, you know, I've been proud to fight for uh, big issues around like healthcare and the environment, you know, standing up to Betsy DeVos's anti-education agenda, because this is her home state. And, you know, I am running in southwest Michigan. So it is a part of the state that is rapidly trending Democratic and uh, a seat that just was barely won by the incumbent last time around. You know, the guy that I'm running against has been there for 34 years. I'm 37 years old. And, you know, we are up against someone who's been on the wrong side of health care, the environment, choice and so many other issues. But I'll tell you, voters in my neck of the woods they are hungry for change. And we've got some of that prairie progressivism in us, right? We were tired of when corporations are rigging the rules, when folks are rigging the rules against working people. And people are really open to saying, yeah, we got to do some things differently here. It would seem that you've got an incumbency, a long-term incumbent is what you're saying, right? Uh, I mean, it seems as though uh, now would be a moment in time where people have to be fed up. I mean, it, it does feel as though it's an inflection moment in history, you know? Uh, and, and I'm wondering, uh, in in this, with the dire need being what it is, if that doesn't really represent an opportunity. You're saying the district is changing in terms of its political makeup, but certainly the time is changing rapidly, right? And those two things come into alignment in a year that we can flip a district in a state that we have to win. And what we're seeing, I'll tell you, right, is the number of people from all across the political spectrum folks who are on the left, who are 
just so fed up with Fred Upton and his anti-climate change agenda, you know, voting dozens of times to take away health care. He voted against coverage for pre-existing conditions 12 times. I mean, you know, people are saying, yeah, we need to move in a different direction. But then I also have independents who are asking like 34 years and why aren't you tackling the problems that we're actually facing here as a community? And then I've got so many folks who used to identify as Republican, but they've watched that party turn into the party of Trump and Fred Upton cozy up to Trump. And they just said, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to do virtual work from home. I've got kids that are trying to figure out virtual school. And all of this is because of the lack of leadership from Donald Trump and Fred Upton supported it every step of the way. And so they, they're fed up and they want to do something different. Uh, these GOP loyalists are a remarkable animal. I just am astounded, even as Trump would seem to be bleeding off a lot of support politically, uh, they still, it would seem, have a death grip on him. And to hear it uh, manifested in the ways you've said, like embracing policies, sort of uh, rejecting uh, pre-existing conditions that are associated with the Affordable Care Act, and this wouldn't seem to be a political winner for him. You know, the... What, we're, what we can tell is that after 34 years, Congressman Upton has just gotten too cozy with the DC system. And he's disconnected from the challenges that we're facing in the district. You know, he talks about uh, bipartisanship, but then in the first two years of the Trump administration, voted 96% of the time with the Trump administration. That's not bipartisan. And, you know, and then on top of that, the issues that he's that he's trying to push are just so out of touch with the challenges that we're facing. You know, skyrocketing student debt. I talk to so many people that can't afford childcare and they're dealing with those issues. You know, long-term care is an issue I've done a lot of work on. You know, I, I remember uh, the bills when my grandfather went into long-term care, you know, 8,000 bucks a month. Those are things that real families are dealing with. And Congressman Upton hasn't been there. He's been asleep at the wheel. And that's why people want to just do something different. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's not just something different. I mean, it would, you know, your progressive ideas feel as though they're right for this time and also for your constituency. Talk about veterans for a moment, because I know on some uh, levels that uh, we haven't gotten to yet, you are active uh, with vets and you have ideas that, again, are, are cutting edge when it comes to veterans. You know, we have so many veterans in our district. Uh, one of the largest VA um, centers is just over, you know, on the other side of the county line. So we have thousands of uh, veterans who've made Southwest Michigan home, you know, and then that's on top of the fact that we have the guard, we've got drill stations just all spotted around the district. You know, this is an opportunity where we could actually do more. As a legislator, I was fighting to make sure our vets got the care they needed through our state-run facilities. And, you know, this is an area where, veterans are been, have been integrated and integral to our communities. And so the question is, why aren't we doing more? It's not just our veterans, right? It's our veterans and their families and the people that love them. And so there's huge opportunities in here where we can both make the VA more responsive. Michigan had ranked last or near the bottom for a number of years on VA care. So it's about time that we actually got some folks to Congress who are going to fight for those veteran issues. And I was just reading some of your stuff before we went on and uh, related to this. And I thought you had suggested as well when it came to uh, education for vets and for those those who, you know, have given generously in terms of military service that uh, you wanted to see the state step up that way as well and the, and the Fed step up. Absolutely. You know, the, 
And I, and I want to be clear. I think that education should be a pathway for everybody. So let's make sure that we do something about the skyrocketing cost of college for everybody. But there are ways that we can help folks step up even more on veteran issues uh, and make sure that our veterans, when they are coming back, they can streamline in terms of getting certifications and uh, certificates that let them you know, jump and get a jump start in the skilled trades. I've talked about making sure that I'm supporting front lines for our workers. Um, so folks who are have been in the front lines of service get access to our community colleges and higher education. And those are things that I think you know, regardless of where you are in the country, we can be doing a lot of great work on. You did very well in your uh, in your past elections to represent your district. And so uh, this constituency, tell me, uh, there's overlap there and uh, and you're expanding it. I mean, is that the that's the plan? That's right. You know, as someone who you know got into politics originally, I'm the, I come from a family of teachers and educators. You know, for me, it's always been about how can we build a Michigan that invests in people? And now that I'm running for Congress, that conversation gets a little bigger, right? How do we make sure that we're putting those people at the center of decisions that are being made in Washington, D.C.? And it turns out when you knock on doors, when you talk to people about the issues they care about, they are willing to look past party and they're willing to say, is this person someone who's going to serve? And I built a track record of prioritizing constituent service and you know, making sure that when it came even to complicated items, I did my best to break them down and make them accessible and explainable. And that has carried me well. You know, in the last few elections, we've watched as our share of the electorate continues to grow. And I remember knocking on doors last cycle when we saw people calling for change, saying that I've never voted for a Democrat and I'm voting for you. That those conversations have been continuing and we need them to continue. I talk to people all the time that this district that I'm running in now extends from my current house district all the way to Lake Michigan, down to, into Indiana and just south of Grand Rapids. It's one of the least gerrymandered districts in the state because they couldn't move Indiana or Lake Michigan, which means <laughs> we get a fair shake. And the things that they're talking about is more of that change. They want us to see someone who's going to be responsive. If you want to stop Mitch McConnell, then we've got to get reelect Gary Peters, and that happens in my district. If you want to defeat Donald Trump, then we've got to turn out voters in Southwest Michigan and get Biden and Harris over the finish line. And so this district is critical up and down the ticket. Uh, check out John Holdy. What a great, fresh, progressive, young voice and voice for real change at a desperately needed time. Uh, we only scratch the surface. You can follow John Holdley on Twitter at, at John Holdley. It's H-O-A-D-L-E-Y. But more importantly, go to his website to see all of his positions on things and maybe to support. You know, you don't have to actually live in Michigan to throw a little support John Holdley's way. It's johnholdley.com. Again, it's H-O-A-D-L-E-Y. And John is spelled J-O-N. So John Holdley. Com. John, thanks. What a pleasure to meet you virtually, someday in person, I hope. But in until that time, good luck and continued success. Thanks, Mark. Hello, everyone. Mark Thompson here in my superhero lair for another episode of The Conversation. Really excited to talk to Xander Schultz. Xander Schultz is going to talk to us about a refugee situation that has run amok in Greece. There was a huge fire, and we'll get to that story in a second. But Xander's also involved in a couple of other organizations that he's gotten rolling, and, and they're really exciting as well. So Xander Schultz, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be here. 
Uh, I mentioned the uh, the refugee uh, situation and the refugee camp. Uh, uh, let's start with it. I guess it really doesn't matter where we start, but let's start with that just because I did sure mention thing. it. I mentioned what a, what a mess it is and what, a, in a way, a human tragedy. But but this is not like the human tragedy, the refugee story that you maybe heard before. There are a lot of moving parts here that are new yep. and extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, no matter where we start, I, I have you know so, some bit of foresight into where our conversations are going to head. It's all a symptom of the same issue, which is neglect and apathy for other folks, you know, whether they're in our own country or, or folks, you know, that, that need help. Uh, refugees are, by definition, people fleeing conflict zones, look, looking to start anew. And uh, the, the degree in which they've been neglected, especially as they cross into these EU states, Greece and Italy, I can speak on Greece in particular, is, is shameful. And uh, most recently, a refugee camp called Mori Refugee Camp based in Lesbos, uh, was incinerated, burnt down on September 9th, leaving it's Europe's largest refugee camp, and it's left 13,000 refugees, about 5,000 children, homeless. Uh, and right now, did they, uh, they ever figure out the the, the the cause of the fire? Not that it matters, but I'm just curious. Was it a arson fire? It's, it, it's unknown. So in the past, there had been fires as protests. The the refugees in this particular camp had been in lockdown since March. Uh, and there was COVID in the camp uh, over the last couple of weeks, and there's very little uh, being done about that. So there have been protest fires in the past. There's also like a theory that a right wing group started. So it's unknown. It's unknown. Okay. And I, all I know is the speculation about it. But the official cause is unknown. And as you say, th I think 13,000 people, is that what you said, were, were, were there or something on that order? 13,000 people in the camp. Luckily, uh, no, no one passed away in the fire. Uh, and, and those folks are now finding themselves in a temporary camp about a mile away from from where this camp was, Moria. And these are refugees from Syria, primarily here in Afghanistan. Where are they from? Yeah. So, so my wife and I, our organization has been working in Lesbos since 2015. And, you know, right around 2015, 2016, the majority of refugees were fleeing the Syrian conflict. Now about two thirds of that population is Afghan. Uh, but. Lesbos in particular serves a really interesting role in the refugee crisis. It's only four miles away from Turkey's border. It's not where you would consider Greece proper and serves as the primary entry point to people fleeing into the European Union. So you have, I think that there's something over 50 different nationalities uh, that we're calling Moria home. And I should just for the record say the organization is called When We Band Together. That's uh, the name of your organization. Yeah, When We Band Together, WWBT. Yeah, WWBT. Uh, and that's the one so active and, and where the work and the real heavy lifting is done uh, in these refugee camps. So you're, uh, I want to leave the refugee situation for a second. We can come back to WWBT in a second. But now I want to get to uh, a couple of other things that you're doing, just so I don't neglect anything in our conversation. Uh, you're back in this country now, and you've started another organization uh, to try to drive some political change. Yeah, I mean, you know, so my wife and I spent January out in uh, Lesvos, in the camp in Moria, seeing the conditions out there and seeing how much suffering was unnecessary and was due to policy. It's not like a hurricane is hitting these places. And, you know, we're all doing our best to, to get organized and support people while they get on their feet. A lot of the refugees in this camp have been there one to two years. 
And it's just due to policy. It's lack of political will. We're allowing people to suffer over time. And so, uh, you know, I came back. Uh, can, I, can I ask a naive yes. first world question? Yes. Which is, definitely. what is a, what is the life of a child or other person, however you want to tell the story, the profile of what that life is like, as best you can condense it for us through the course of a day, week, month, and then a year? Man, it is uh, at this particular refugee camp, it's not great. Not too different than our policy over here on the border. You've seen a policy in Europe to make these camps intentionally miserable. So the word gets out to not come that direction. And so Moria in particular, the BBC had called it the worst refugee camp on earth. There's a complete lack of programming. You were in food lines for several hours. The shelter wasn't good enough. And a lot of people were incredibly cold at night. Uh, it was not designed in a thoughtful way where you had a lot of intercultural violence. Uh, you know, it's to be expected when you put people in those types of circumstances. There was open sewage, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a child in that setting, there wasn't, most people weren't in, in school. Most children weren't in school. You're, that's what you're exposed to. That's what you're exposed to, and that's the, that's the degree of daily trauma you're exposed to. So our organization, you know, our attempt at trying to minimize that experience was to rent warehouses that surround this refugee camp and turn them into community centers. So we had one that was a women and children's center where we partnered with Team Humanity, and we were on our way to creating a, a sports and wellness center uh, when, that's now being served as a HQ for the Red Cross right now in Lesbos. We, we, we partnered with them and allowing them to serve as HQ, but... Yeah, man, it is uh, the day to day is is rough and unfortunately intentionally intentionally rough. You're remarkable, though. It's sort of there, there's something of a magician in in the ways you've pulled support together in some of these places, Andrew. Tell, now take me to this one for democracy organization that you just kicked off. Sure thing. So so you know, if you look at my LinkedIn, it says I work as an entrepreneur in residence at a family office. I work at Mike Novogratz's family office, and and our job as part, you know, as a piece of the foundation is to spin off initiatives that, that, you know, really advance social justice. And so One for Democracy was started as an observation that while every powerful progressive was saying Trump was the worst thing on earth, folks weren't going all in. They weren't going big. And wh why was that? One, you know, there wasn't a great call to action to go big. Two, it can be complex and confusing on how to go big in elections in ways that are grounded and hyper-effective. You know, there's $8 billion going into the election. People are wondering what they're, even when you're you know, a billionaire, what's my million going to do? $8 billion, you know, when I throw it in there. And so uh, we wanted to create both a call to action, which is 1% of your net worth going towards this election, and ways in which you can diversify and do good uh, and be impactful. And so we created funds, uh, one being called the Justice Fund, which allowed donors to invest in 20-plus Black-led community organizers in the swing states, we have a Latinx fund, uh, and we would put together, you know, mini funds based on, look, our, our stance wasn't, we're not going to tell you how to go big. You, you know you want to go big. We're going to help you do it in the most effective way that calls to you. So if you're worried about voter protection, we'll help you get that done. If you're worried about marginalized communities, and, and a lot of people were in the wake of the George, George Floyd killing, uh, we'll help you go big there in a way that's effective. So you meet with these high net worth type people and, and, and ask them for 1%? <laughs> or more. We'll take more, too, for sure. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, and a, a lot of it now is not I, I don't want to put too much credit on our plate because a lot of it is these donors became donor organizers and they're going to their communities and saying, like, look, 
we're all saying in our private circles that this we're facing a disaster here. We're facing down fascism. We're facing down down a sociopathic leader. We need to do something and go big. This is what I've done. Will you come in with me? So now it's got a life of its own, you know, far beyond, you know, the original folks that thought of this thing. It's been really inspiring to see how people have leaned in. You're right about that. Certainly this moment in time has created an imperative, probably, that uh, many are responding to in ways that they probably and likely may not have had a history of uh, responding to in the, in the, in the past. Uh, I, I want to ask you, before we run out of time, about uh, another organization, Defeat by Tweet. Tell everybody about Defeat by Tweet. Yeah, this one's fun. And if you're pissed off every time you read Donald Trump's tweets, uh, th this this can be the medicine you need. So our initiative, DefeatByTweet.org, we allow folks to donate a penny or two every time Trump tweets to a syndicate of Black-led organizers in the swing states. And so as of this morning, last time I checked, we'd raised about $2.3 million. We're we're donating about $2,500 per tweet collectively. We have about 37,000 monthly donors or per tweet donors. And, uh, and we're ramping up from there. So uh, we're, we're moving about 60 to $100,000 a day right now, depending on how much our friend over in the Oval Office uh, <laughs> is feeling inspired or angry. So when he has a big tweet night, that's a great, that's a great night for you. I'm telling you, you know, however you feel about Trump's tweets, I think I can make an assumption on how you feel about them. You, you get to start ignoring the content and just enjoying the volume of it. So those days that used to be so triggering for me where I'd wake up and it'd be like, oh, God, this guy, you know, look, look what he's throwing out into the world. You're like, man, great. That was $50,000 to black led political C4 organizations, traditionally some of the hardest organizations to fundraise for, and we're giving them the money they need to organize and get their communities to turn out. Tell us all how we can follow this. Defeat by tweet, one for democracy, when we band together, how do we follow these organizations and support them? I mean, you know, Instagram works really well for when we band together, at when we band together, and at defeat by tweet. Uh, th that's how you follow them on Instagram, Twitter as well for defeat by tweet. It's only appropriate. We have a Twitter account, I assume. Uh, and then one for democracy.org. Uh, look, if you're a wealthy individual, you're looking at the situation, you think you need to play a role in it, which I think most folks do. This is a great way and an easy way to help activate you. So one for democracy.org, there's ways you can get involved. You'll see it on the website and, you know, not only do we want you to lean in, we need you to lean in. Uh, Xander Schultz, what a pleasure, man. I mean, I just, you know, it's humbling almost to talk to someone who's devoted so much of their life to trying to make a difference and doing it in creative and and, and different forums and on different platforms. Wow. Man, back at you, the Young Turks. You guys are always leading the conversation. It's awesome to be on here. And it's really like the, the work you all are doing just by hosting me here and the work you guys always do is so, so important, man. Journalism is a... Uh, is is you know the it's been it's been such an interesting year watching all this go down and, and journalists be attacked this is where the conversations get started this is how folks find out about initiatives like this so you all are doing heroes work for sure it's an honor well, to be on I certainly hope that's true and the, and I, I do think the truth is one of those things that's uh, an endangered species right now so uh so it is great to be part of an outfit like tyt that gets it out there but again Zana, we look forward to uh to, to checking in with you and continued success from you. So all, all right, the best, man. Thank you so much, man. Thank, Take right, care. See you.